Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Ted Nordhaus, founder and executive director at the Breakthrough Institute. This is a follow-up to an episode I did recently with Jessica Lovering, BTI's Director of Energy. Jessica and I had a great chat about her work in the energy practice at BTI, which wet my whistle to hear more about the founding story and a bird's-eye view of the work that BTI does overall throughout the organization. And Ted does not disappoint in this discussion. We cover a number of topics, including Ted's background and history, what led him to caring about climate change, some of the frustrations he had with the environmental movement that led him to founding BTI. We talked about BTI's mission and vision, as well as the work that they do. We talk about the climate change problem, and here was probably the most interesting point in the discussion, because Ted's view of the nature of the problem and how to best solve is very different than any guest I've talked to so far on the pod, and a must-listen to. Whether you agree or disagree, you gotta hear it. We talk about some of his frustrations with the Green New Deal and what a better path might be. We talk about the 2020 election. And again, Ted's perspective on the importance of the election is different than most of the guests I've had on the pod so far. And then typical stuff, the role of innovation versus policy, the role of the big strategics versus startups. We talk about where we are in the climate fight and what the most impactful things will be to get us out of this jam. So the types of topics aren't changing episode to episode. What's changing is the guests and their specific perspectives. And Ted's perspective is different. So let me stop hyping it up and let's get him on here. Ted Nordhaus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I'm excited for this one. I, I know you do a lot of writing and a lot of, you know, you guys host some, some great events and some in-depth research. And, and I think your perspective is pretty different than a lot of other perspectives out there, which means it's one that I absolutely wanted to have represented. Great. I will do my best. Let's jump right into it. And I should say, I, I had Jessica Lovering from your team on recently. So we did cover some ground with the Breakthrough Institute, but I, I think it'd be helpful to rehash a little bit just because I feel like your perspective may be aligned in some places and, and maybe a little different. So let's start there. What's the Breakthrough Institute? The Breakthrough Institute is a think tank based in Oakland, California. We are the world's sort of first and, and probably certainly most prominent eco-modernist think tank. We really kind of gave birth to what people call eco-modernism, which is sort of view of how technology and human societies together can make the world better for people and for nature. And where did the idea for Breakthrough Institute come from? Well, I started Breakthrough, oh God, over a decade ago with a guy named Michael Schellenberger, who I wrote with and worked with for many years. And it really kind of came out of a essay that the two of us self-published in 2004 called The Death of Environmentalism. And The Death of Environmentalism really argued that traditional environmentalism, the environmental movement and sort of environmental ideas about the world were just not, you know, had, had achieved many important things over the previous 30 or 40 years, clean air, clean water, 
national parks, lots of conservation objectives, but really was poorly suited to take on the sort of new, very different global environmental challenges that we were going to be faced with in the 21st century. And that was really because at bottom was a restricted enterprise. The idea that the way that you would protect the environment was by restricting human activity and restricting sort of human ambition. And in a world of, you know, 7 billion people going on 9 or 10 billion people, most of whom want to live that something that looks like a modern life, dealing with problems like climate change or the global loss of biodiversity was going to require a very different sort of project, a generative project. It was going to require us to sort of build a new world that could meet what were going to be sort of greatly expanded human needs and human desires while reducing our impact on the natural world and the environment. And what were you doing prior to Breakthrough Institute and what was it that led you to the conclusions that you're talking about here? Yeah, you know, I had spent my pretty much my entire career in and around the environmental movement. I started doing grassroots environmental work, literally knocking on doors in communities all over the country. I did almost every job that you could do in environmental sort of politics and movement building, interestingly, other than doing sort of policy work and research. So you know, I worked as a running environmental campaigns. I was a pollster. I worked for, you know, in one capacity or another for almost every big environmental group, either in a staff capacity or as a consultant or as a pollster. And, you know, mostly sort of on the political side of things and in the campaign side, campaign and organizing side of things. But back in the early 2000s, with a couple of other people, we started a thing called the Apollo Project, which if you've heard a lot about the Green New Deal, the Apollo Project was kind of like the original Green New Deal. And this was right after 9-11. And we were sort of looking at what even then was sort of clearly the failure of the existing environmental sort of framework for thinking about climate change or acting on it to deal with with the issue and sort of said, well, what's going on here? And, and you know, it was clear, especially after 9-11, was that just climate was not a major priority for voters who were much more concerned both about, at that time, sort of terrorism and and also just sort of traditional concerns about the economy. So we said, well, what if we rethought the climate problem and really reoriented it around the things that people actually kind of get up every day thinking about and worrying about. And that was getting off of fossil fuels and in the process of doing so, building a very different economy that would provide economic op more economic opportunity. So we had this idea of what we called an Apollo project, which would be a big, we were proposing a $300 billion 10-year investment by the US federal government to just get the US off of fossil fuels. Sounds sort of very familiar if you're following a lot of the discussion of the Green New Deal. And, you know, one thing we initially thought that this was really about getting off of oil. You know, this was again right after 9 11. We had invaded Afghanistan, we were about to invade Iraq. So I was a pollster at the time and I did the very first polling on this question on sort of what became kind of green jobs and the clean economy agenda. And so we went to Erie, Pennsylvania, 
which was, you know, a, a place that even then was just had been sort of decimated by the sort of deindustrialization of the American economy. And we did these focus groups in Erie. And I remember, you know, we were sort of talking about this idea of, you know, the first thing that became clear was that, yeah, people were worried about national security and getting off oil. But what they really cared about was jobs and manufacturing. We were talking about this idea of kind of really reinvesting in America's sort of manufacturing capacities and sort of solar panels and windmills and things like that. And I remember what I would always do, I was, I was moderating this focus group and I kind of walked out of the room towards the end of the group just to sort of see if anybody had, you know, who was watching from the other side of the glass wanted me to kind of cover things I hadn't covered. And I always did that also because it was a great opportunity to actually leave the room and see what people talked about when there was no moderator in the room. Sounds like when I was running a company and I would leave the room so that the board could talk, you know, yeah. everyone everyone on the board except for the CEO has a discussion at the end of the board meeting. And it's always like, yeah, oh, yeah. Like, but not, if only you had a one way mirror yeah. and you could say what they were, <laughs> see what they were actually saying. So we, we go back there and of course, immediately what they started speculating that, you know, that we were like a company or like a, you know, GE or someone who was thinking about bringing a factory back to Erie to manufacture windmills. And they were getting sort of so excited. You could feel that they sort of really had this, this hope. And, and so, you know, that was really the beginning of the kind of clean economy sort of, you know, what really became, you know, certainly by 2007, 2008, this is really what the sort of democratic climate agenda not climate agenda, what the democratic economic, you know, to the degree to which Democrats had a, a theory of the economy or a kind of claim by the time Obama's running about how they're going to kind of improve the economy. It really is clean energy and green jobs. And that was really kind of, you know, on, on energy and climate, the great accomplishment of the Obama of the Obama years really was the green stimulus, which was basically the sort of much of the Apollo agenda that we had laid out back in 2002. And just gives you a sense also of just how long, you know, everyone wants action right now, but it does give you a sense of sort of how long these kind, it takes for these kind of ideas to sort of enter the mainstream and become real politically and actually even sort of partially get implemented. So, so you know, that's how I kind of got started doing a, what I do now. That's really how Breakthrough got started. And, and what was interesting is that we wrote Death of Environmentalism because a couple of years into this, none of the big environmental groups had any interest in this. I mean, this was being led by outsiders like us and also by segments of the organized labor movement and groups like the National Resources Defense Council, Sierra Club, others really were not very interested in this idea that we would move away from what they still viewed as the sort of central strategy, which was basically a regulatory strategy. We would solve the problem just like we had solved acid rain or conventional air pollution problems to this idea of, you know, what people then and still sometimes now derisively call industrial policy. So death of environmentalism really kind of you know, the the genesis of that essay, which sort of goes viral and is read all over the world and is still taught in universities, you know, all around the world, environmental studies programs, things like that, was basically this idea that this older environmental idea of sort of what we call the politics of limits, 
just could not solve this problem and that you needed a very different politics and a very different sort of political and economic agenda if you were going to deal with the problem of climate change. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that the existing environmental movement was was very much about penalizing and doing less and and the opportunity that you saw, not just in terms of white space, but in terms of what would actually be more effective at solving the problem is decoupling and doing more. Yeah, it's 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 doing more. It's it's technological change, it's infrastructure. You know, you have to just go build the entire infrastructure of a new economy. And that's going to be, you know, new energy technologies. That's going to be evolving agriculture technologies. You know, it's all technology sort of all the way down. You know, we have these sort of, I think, are really mostly very false debates around this where people kind of go, well, like, do we need to sort of fundamentally change our way of life or do we need what people sort of derisively call a techno fix? But the reality is that almost everyone, you know, proposing to do something about climate change is actually proposing a techno fix. Often they disagree on what the techno fix is. There are people who say we need lots more nuclear energy. There are people who say we can do it all with renewables. But, you know, it's all ultimately everyone is actually talking about some sort of quite radical transformation of the energy economy, certainly with new technology. So it's it's always already about a techno fix. And the question is, what sort of technology or what mix of technologies? And also, what are the sort of social, economic, and institutional requirements for that transformation? Well, when I was reading a bit in prep for this discussion, I found some contrasting viewpoints, or at least that's how they're positioned in the media, that, that, that'd be great if you could clarify. Because on the one hand, I read that you didn't feel that the Green New Deal was ambitious enough in, in some ways. And then in another, recently, you wrote a piece saying that, that these big, bold, loud initiatives will serve to polarize us more and will make getting anything done from a bipartisan standpoint even harder, and that maybe we should be tiptoeing and doing quiet work behind the scenes, which seems to be the antithesis of the Green New Deal. So could you just clarify and maybe expand on, on how you're thinking about those topics? You know, I think that particularly that first piece, which is a piece that I, I published in June in Issues in Science and Technology, which is sort of popular publication of the National Academy of Sciences, as opposed to sort of the, the, the academic publications that the Academy puts out. And that piece was called the, the Empty Radicalism of the Climate Apocalypse. The point I'm making in that piece is that if, in fact, as a lot of people you know, associated with the Green New Deal and with sort of what people are calling the climate emergency, if you really are like, we have a decade or 12 years or you know, some very, very short period of time to radically cut U.S. and global emissions, then the sorts of proposals that even the sort of most radical voices in the debate are proposing are just are just incredibly inadequate to doing that. Do you believe that that first part, Ted, about the twelve years and the radical action? I do required? not. I don't believe that climate change is that kind of problem. I don't believe that we're gonna that even if if everybody believed that was the case that 
we would be prepared to do the things that would be necessary. Okay, so you weren't saying that the Green New Deal is not radical enough. You were saying the Green New Deal is not radical enough if the twelve if if you believe if you believe twelve years, the Green New Deal is massively inadequate. And if you really believe that, like, if we don't radically slash emissions in the next twelve years, it's kind of game over for the climate and human civilizations, which is the argument that many people are quite explicitly making. If you believe that, like, we can't solve climate change without ending capitalism or massively degrowing the global economy, then then nothing that has been practically put on the table by anyone saying those things is actually remotely consistent with the scale of the challenge or the crisis that they are claiming exists, that you would actually, like, you know, you would implement rationing of fossil fuels immediately. You would nationalize major energy-intensive sectors of the U.S. and global economies, certainly the power sector, certainly a, a lot of the industrial sectors, all the places where we know the emissions are coming from. And literally nobody, including like the democratic socialists who are like, we need to radically rethink the role of government and we need to move away from what they call neoliberalism, which is just basically market capitalism, is, is willing to propose any such thing. So, so my argument is that the best kind of way to, to assess how people really think about climate change and climate risk is to look at what they do, not what they say. Look at what they propose to do. Look at their actions. And there's nothing in the sort of climate emergency. If you look at what the people saying climate emergency are proposing to do about it, there's just nothing there that suggests that this is the sort of emergency that they're suggesting it is. It's a chronic problem. I wrote a piece a few months ago basically arguing that climate change is more like diabetes than an asteroid headed for the planet. And if we think about that, we think about both the politics and the policy and what's going to be necessary to deal with the problem very differently. And so when you say that the people are saying emergency, but they're not proposing policy to suggest emergency, what's the problem there? Because if, they're, if, if you look at what they do and what they're doing, so is what they're doing sufficient for the nature of the problem that it is, or is, or is what they're doing wholly insufficient? And if insufficient, where does it miss the mark? You know, so there's two issues here. I mean, one is, is whether sort of continually sort of escalating the, the, the rhetoric about the problem, you know, in the belief that even if you're exaggerating by exaggerating, you will sort of galvanize a political reaction and a response. And my view, and it's sort of longstanding, is that that is just not, there's just no evidence that this is going to work, that by becoming sort of ever more hysterical about the problem, by kind of both the kind of continual escalation of the claims about sort of game over for civilization and also the sort of continual, you know, positing of, of climate deadlines, you know, and, and, you know, I've been at this almost 20 years really working pretty centrally on climate and we've had deadline after deadline after deadline. We have X years to act, you know, we have five years to act, 10 years to act, whatever. And these deadlines come and go with literally no no impact whatsoever. And so like now we have a new deadline. We've got 12 years to act. And I, you know, there's just no 
reason, you know, 30 years into the politics and our understanding of this issue to think that these new deadlines are going to be, have any more effect than the old deadlines had. And that's where I make the argument for a different approach, which is actually to sort of de-escalate the rhetoric to try to sort of, you know, what we end up as we kind of get this escalating rhetoric is these very sweeping calls for kind of economy-wide, global, act, coordinated action to address the, the problem. And everyone kind of goes, well, this big, you know, sort of we'll, we'll, we'll posit a crisis, we'll posit a sweeping solution to it. You get this sort of what we call everythingism that becomes part of the, you know, that, that gets swept up into this. So, you know, you look at the Green New Deal and like we're going to solve we're going to do Medicare for all and a federal jobs guarantee and radical, you know, investments to remake the entire energy economy. And the idea is, well, by doing this, you kind of bring everybody to, you know, you kind of get all these different constituencies together that want all these things. But the problem is that you also unite the opposition. So it works both ways. And, and you know, moreover, because of the a lot of the claims that get attached to the sort of climate emergency, you also increasingly sort of polarize the debate. So, so you have a united opposition, you have a, a intensely polarized debate, and those are just not the conditions for a sort of sustained multi-decadal effort to transform the American economy, to support the development and diffusion of low-carbon technologies across the U.S. and the global economy, you know, you just, you're just, you're just kind of been sucked up into this intensely polarized national political debate. And meantime, I think a lot of the evidence we have over the last couple of decades is the sort of things on climate and energy that have made the most difference are things that kind of bubbled along below the radar for a long time, often with sort of quiet, bipartisan support, much less controversial. And my view, for better or worse, is that that's sort of likely to be, to continue to be the way that we'll make the most progress in terms of decarbonizing the U.S. economy is, is sort of the things that, that are not the subject of the sort of loud, intense debates. So could you give some examples historically where that quiet bipartisanship has been effective and, and then also of some types of things you'd like to see enacted using that, that approach in the climate fight going forward? Yeah, you know, obviously for me, one of the kind of really kind of eye-opening things that sort of changed my perspective on some of this was, you know, we did the first really detailed history and documentation of the public role that the sort of federal government played in the shale gas revolution. And, you know, while everyone over the last 30 years or more was debating about, you know, whether, you know, renewables or nuclear would be the energy future or whether we were going to run out of oil, you know, sort of very quietly, really out of view, certainly far away from the national political debate, you know, there was just a sort of sustained relatively modest federal investment in developing these new technologies to extract natural gas out of shale formations, which is actually where most of the oil and gas actually is. So, you know, you had national laboratories working on this program. 
you had this thing called the Gas Research Institute, which was a public-private partnership funded by a very modest fee on natural gas pipeline transmission. You know, you had a production tax credit for non-conventional fuels. You had a whole set of policies and, and you know, kind of over the course of about 30 years, a guy named George Miller, with a lot of help from the Department of Energy and the Gas Research Institute, figures out how to get shale out of initially one particular shale, shale formation in Texas, you know, in an economic, in an economic way. And, you know, that just, trans, you know, not only like it, it transforms the global energy economy for better and worse. You know, it's, it's been very double-edged. I think less so in the way that a lot of environmental opponents of fracking talk about it, which is that, you know, it's poisoning groundwater and, and you know, it's as bad as coal, which is just simply not the case. But, you know, the technologies that initially allow us to get cheap natural gas also then, which nobody thought would be possible, are transferred over and we figure out how to get oil out of those formations as well. And, and initially, no one thought we would ever be able to use these techniques to extract oil from shale formations. And that has just kind of, it, it, it destroyed, you know, oil was $100 plus a barrel and, and fracking broke OPEC. It transformed global geopolitics. You know, a lot of kind of what's happened in terms of Russia's sort of efforts to to project itself globally in, in all the ways that have been so problematic were a reaction to the fact that it was no longer able to sort of count on its sort of oil and gas reserves to remain relevant politically across Europe and elsewhere. So, you know, technological change brings all sorts of things, you know, that we never see coming again, positively and negatively. What about looking forward? So are, do you have specific initiatives that you'd like to see enacted? If so, it'd be great to hear them. And if not, it'd be great to understand what an approach would be to, to identify them. Yeah. So, you know, we do a lot of work on advanced nuclear energy. And for me, that's a, you know, likely to be a kind of key technology in terms of long-term decarbonization of the global economy. And, you know, we had this old legacy nuclear industry that's sort of big, lumbering, really pretty sort of centralized technologies and also economic institutions. Nuclear energy, conventional nuclear energy really doesn't work in liberalized electricity markets, for instance. And that's sort of increasingly where sort of global, the power sector has been moving globally. So, you know, if nuclear is going to play a role, you're going to need to have smaller technologies that can operate in a more sort of decentralized way in liberalized power markets where you're not sort of centrally planning the entire grid. And, you know, there's a whole sort of new generation of these technologies and really startup companies that are sort of trying to bring them to, to market. And so we do a lot of work kind of going like, what is the policy framework that gets you over the next few decades really viable, economically competitive advanced nuclear energy, which, you know, in a world where, you know, solar and wind have made great progress, but there's limits to them as long as, you know, because of their intermittency, you're going to need some other sort of zero carbon technologies to fully decarbonize the power grid and to electrify other sectors of the economy. Advanced nuclear is one of them. 
carbon capture and carbon removal is another case, you know, and both of these things are things where kind of like, you know, sure, I would like to see sort of more money and sort of more kind of public policy supporting it. But I also think that a lot of progress can be made with fairly modest policy that doesn't sort of require one party to win and one party to lose. For instance, most of the stuff on carbon capture and advanced nuclear has moved forward with pretty strong bipartisan support. You know, like one of the last bipartisan things that happens in Congress. And I hope we keep it that way. There's more examples, you know, for instance, like we got to figure out the power sector in the U.S. right now is like 20% of emissions. So, you know, there's a lot of other, most of the emissions are coming from other sources, yet all anyone really talks about is like the power sector. So, you know, what are we going to do? What are the technologies for decarbonizing steel or cement or lots of, a lot of the transportation sector? That's not going to be done with Teslas. So, you know, and, and I think that sort of once you get down to that technology by technology, sector by sector, kind of thinking about how you get from here to there, as opposed to this sort of climate emergency, we have to do everything at once right now. I think there's a lot more sort of possibility for progress. Is the role of BTI to go through and do that analysis technology by technology, sector by sector, and then leave it to someone else to figure out based on that data and that information, what's the right policy framework or what's the right R&D budget or things like that to, to bring those things about? Or, or are you also thinking about specific initiatives that could be put in place to unlock the things that your analysis is, is informing? Yeah, we do a lot of what I would call policy development and sort of at a high level. So, you know, look, we're not going to sit down and give you our model legislation for, you know, decarbonizing the steel industry. But we will make a, a, you know, sort of assess the potential pathways and kind of look at, for instance, how we do R&D around relevant technologies, public R&D, what is missing, what the sort of, you know, sorts of policies, you know, so like on advanced nuclear, you know, the sort of basic framework that we've laid out over the last, you know, seven, eight years is sort of basically what's moving forward now, which is some licensing reform at the NRC, sort of opening up national laboratories to private entrepreneurial nuclear startups because there's huge amounts of knowledge and experience and frankly just data on nuclear materials, nuclear fuels, nuclear reactor designs at the national laboratories that these firms really didn't have access to. It's sort of making investments in in sort of some of the kind of solving some of the technological challenges, the specific technological challenges that are shared across different nuclear technologies. And then it's providing some advanced market commitments to sort of certainly get the first of kind of these new reactors to market. So that's a framework without being like put X amount of dollars in this agency or create a new agency or create a new public-private partnership that shall be done exactly like this. We'll sort of lay out the broad outlines of a kind of policy approach and the sort of policy mechanisms that you would need to get where you need to go. And are, are you in the business of picking winners as it relates to different technologies, or, or is it just more is better and the markets will solve? I would say a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I think that our view is that, you know, you need to make a bunch, you know, that we need to support a broad portfolio of technologies. We need to provide some sort of targeted market pull to get those technologies to market. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, just just put a price on carbon and let the market figure it out. But the reality is that, you know, those sorts of approaches you know, it's it's necessary whether it's through a carbon price or a, you know clean energy standard. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. I think you need sort of technology neutral policies to sort of provide some some support for the commercialization and diffusion of low carbon technologies. But in most cases, you also need more targeted support to get them to market. So you're not going to get it, you know, just putting a, you know, $30 or $40 price on carbon, which I think is kind of, you know, the outer realm of, of sort of political possibility and is probably pretty, frankly, in my view, quite unlikely even at that level. You know, that's not going to get you advanced nuclear technologies in the next 15 years. You're going to need to kind of, you know, do some procurement or do some to get to get those first of kind technologies built. You need to do more than that. And then I think you need to kind of ramp public support down and sort of provide more generalized technology neutral market pull. So you need to do both. You need to kind of our our view kind of tends to be that like early on you need to support a lot of different technologies you need to do that in a kind of competitive way but you need to you know if you want advanced nuclear technologies you need to say you know the government is going to buy the first you know 10 gigawatts of advanced nuclear technology that can meet a sort of particular performance criteria for instance and and that's going to be the same with carbon capture technologies you know frankly that's that is how we got solar and wind to the point where they're sort of start they're close to being competitive cost competitive in in some markets with fossil fuels with quite targeted technology te- quite targeted policies to get those technologies to market so i know i've heard from you that a, that a price on carbon won't be enough but is there any downside to having one and if so what well i mean i think the downside is you know some people sort of say we should like just have a price on carbon and not do any of these other things in fact, we should sort of trade off a price on carbon for, you know, various sort of clean energy subsidies, various clean energy deployment mandates. You know, that, in my view, is just a terrible idea. But, but I'm asking a different question, which is, is there any downside? So, you know, I guess assuming there's no trade off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I have no objection to to putting a price on carbon. I mean, the primary the primary you know constraint on that is political. And, you know, the truth is that politicians, as a, a colleague of mine likes to say, you know, politicians aren't stupid. They're smart. They're actually good at their jobs and their job is to get elected. So politicians like to hide costs and and avoid creating pain for their constituents they don't like to sort of make the costs of their policies visible and they don't like to 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 be held responsible for for imposing costs on their constituents so you know that's always been the sort of trouble with carbon pricing and putting a price on carbon is that it's very difficult to establish when we establish it it's almost always low it's not at the levels that would sort of drive 
substantial transformation of energy markets. So, you know, every little bit helps. And I, I you know, I have no, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy if we could get a, a, you know, politically feasible carbon price in place, so long as, as we stop talking about it as the sort of be all and end all of climate policy, because it's not. So can things like CCS or direct air capture or advanced nuclear ever be cost competitive without a price on carbon? And if so, how? Yeah. You know, I think it's the only, ultimately, the only path to sort of deep decarbonization globally is to make clean energy cheap. I don't think it necessarily has to be cheaper than fossil, but it has to be close enough in cost that the sort of immediate costs of sort of regulation or a carbon price or whatever mechanism you have, you put in place to drive the transformation are sort of really kind of mostly in the noise for most people. So yeah, you know, advanced nuclear, certainly if we can figure out how to scale it and get a set of these new technologies to market, I think can be very cheap. And, you know, right now there's a new carbon capture technology called net power that, you know, I think the first demonstration plant is going to begin operation end of this year, early next year, I believe. You know, that technology, you know, by the numbers and what everyone's looking at is going to cost no more than a new combined cycle natural gas plant. And it's going to capture all its carbon. So, you know, here's an example that we have right in front of us of a of a technology that is going to be, you know, looks like at least in relationship to combined cycle natural gas is going to be, you know, almost immediately cost competitive. So if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that would have the biggest impact on accelerating the the decarbonization of the global economy, what would that be? You know, it would be cheap, clean energy. It's, 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 it's the only thing that matters. What could we change in order to unlock that? Well, you just, you have to kind of, you know, and, and again, this has been our sort of central argument for, you know, well over a decade is that, you have to kind of, it, this is a, a long-term innovation challenge. And, you know, the central objective of all climate policy, if what you are after is deep decarbonization of the global economy as quickly as you can, is policies designed to accelerate the rate of technological change such that clean energy is as cheap as fossil or, 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 or darn close to it. And is it, is it, is that, is that federal? Is that state? Is is that it's, technology it's agnostic? Is it picking winners? Like, like what? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's sort of all of the above, like people who kind of, our critics kind of try to reduce what we're saying to just like, we just are saying like, like spend more money on research and development and don't do anything else. That's not our view. I mean, innovation happens in lots of different ways. And it happens in response to regulation. It it happens in response to price signals. It happens in response to sort of laboratory breakthroughs. It happens in response to just combining and recombining old and new technologies in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, you need to pick a whole lot of winners. And we don't know what, what the winners are going to be, Simply leaving it sort of to the market to pick the winners, you know, demonstrably is not going to work. And government has a much better record of picking winners than a lot of people tend to give it credit for. 
almost every low carbon technology that we have available today was developed with substantial and sustained support by the US federal government. That's solar, wind, nuclear, carbon capture, many of the big improvements in energy efficiency, shale gas, all of it. So you'd be hard pressed to find any low carbon technology, any decarbonizing technology that wasn't developed with substantial and sustained support from the federal government. And that's not just research and development, it's also things like performance standards, demonstrations of technologies, tax credits to support the commercialization and initial markets for those technologies, government procurement, all of it. So there's a kind of suite of policies from the laboratory to the market that are necessary to support innovation sort of throughout the entire energy economy. And that is the sort of central challenge. We're not going to make much progress on climate change if we're not doing all of those things. And so if the president called you up and said, okay, in spirit, I agree with you, you know, no price on carbon or not necessarily no price on carbon, but just that price on carbon in itself won't be sufficient that, you know, we, we need to make, make clean energy cheap. So Ted, like here's the keys to the kingdom, you know, you can put any one thing in place. Uh, is, is the reason why there's not an answer to that? Because, because there's a long tail of, there's no one silver bullet. There's no thing. one thing. There's no yeah. one technology and there's no one policy. You know, I think that, you know, what you have to do is sort of put in place a sort of sustained and politically sustainable. I mean, the first thing if a president called me and said that, I would kind of go like, think about how you're going to kind of create a set of policies and institutions that can be sustained, you know, four or eight years from now when you're not president anymore. And when like the other party is in control of government, tell me how that's going to work. Because, you know, in a in a pluralistic democracy, you know, we're not going to be a one-party state. You have to put in places in place policies that are robust to both the technological uncertainty and to the reality that the political, you know, political winds are going to wax and wane on this. So, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, if if you know, I would happily support, you know, a modest, sustainable carbon price in which all of the money was kind of dedicated to research, development, demonstration, and support for commercialization of low carbon technology. Are any of the groups that are that are focused on carbon price proposing that? Almost none of them, interestingly. You know, there's lots of, I think, misguided kind of ideas that sort of the carbon price should be revenue neutral or should be sort of refunded to taxpayers and that this will sort of fix the politics around carbon pricing. There's sort of simply no evidence for that. In fact, all of the the survey research at least suggests that actually using money from any sort of carbon tax to invest in clean energy technology is more popular than sort of refunding it or recycling it or dividends or any of it. And, you know, there's a reason for that, which is that, and this goes back to my days as a pollster, that, that people just don't believe that, they're, that, that a price is going to sort of drive the sort of change that we're talking about. They're much more likely to support these sort of things. You know, the way we, we still sell carbon pricing is like, imagine that I was trying to sell you a car. And I said to you, Jason, I have this car for you. It costs $45,000, 
And I know that $45,000 might seem like a lot of money, but let me tell you how we're going to finance it. And we have a bunch of different options. You can, you can actually put no money down and we'll finance it over time and whatever. And, you know, after 15 or 20 minutes of going through all of the different costs and finance options, I finally told you what the car was and that it could go zero to 60 in four seconds and that it had nice leather seats and it had a great entertainment system and here's all the features of the car. Well, that's how we basically sell climate policy with carbon pricing is we start by talking about how much it's going to cost and how we're going to reduce the costs or how we're going to refund the money or why it doesn't really cost that much. And then we never really kind of get around to telling people what they get for their money. If I was trying to sell a carbon price, I would sell the thing I would sell is sustained public investment in clean energy technology, which is wildly popular. And then I would sort of say, and by the way, we're going to pay for this with a small fee on carbon. Literally nobody does it, which, which it, I find it stunning still that like that, that, uh, you know, the, the kind of advocates of these policies. And, and I think it's paradigmatic. It kind of goes back to what we call the pollution paradigm or the, or the politics of limits, which is just this idea still in a lot of quarters that, that you know, you, you have to focus on the pollutant and, and sort of regulating the pollutant out of existence as opposed to sort of focusing on what's going to replace you know, on, on, on what's new, on, on what's going to take the place of, of the old technology or the old fuels that we're not going to use anymore. So, so price on carbon aside, the bipartisan approach that you're advocating doesn't re- require a healthy two-party system. And do we have a healthy two-party system today? I, I think we don't have a healthy two-party system, which is all the more, you know, I think that like we call it, say, bipartisanship is sort of, you know, with with good reason, it just the word at this point invokes a lot of cynicism just because it's like, it's like, you know, there's so little of it. Well, because we don't have a healthy two-party system, yeah, because cynicism, we, yeah. but, but rightfully so, it seems. Yeah, well, and, and, and my point is that, like, if, if what you think bipartisanship means, and the way that it's often been used is that sort of somehow there's going to be these, this sort of grand, high-level compromise on climate change, and that everyone is going to kind of stand up and, like, the a president and the opposition party are all going to kind of you know, go and, 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 and stand in the rose garden and say, we have reached a grand bargain and agreement to solve climate change. No, that is not what I'm saying is the way forward. What I'm saying is that the more granular you get on the policy, the more potential there is for bipartisan cooperation on very particular things that don't require, you know, Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump to stand up and say, you know what, we were wrong about climate change. It just simply requires them to say, you know, we might even disagree about how serious the problem is, but we can all agree that we ought to invest in the next generation of nuclear technology or renewables technology for that matter, or that we want better, higher productivity, more efficient agriculture in this country. And we want to increase agriculture exports to other places so they don't have to clear their forests. So that's where I think some possibility of political compromise and negotiation is possible, where at this very high level, the kind of Green New Deal cap and dividend or fee and dividend level, I don't think that sort of grand bargain is 
currently possible and is likely to be possible anytime soon. So, so you know, when I argue for cl quiet climate policy, what I'm arguing for is a sort of policy is disaggregating the action, the costs of action, and the sort of different constellations of interest groups that kind of have an interest in different sorts of technologies and in different sectors of the economy, that that's the level at which sort of kind of interest group negotiation and bipartisan you know, or cross-partisan negotiation is possible because the stakes are actually much lower, both politically and economically. So when I talk to, I, I don't know your, your political views, but when I talk to people that are in the climate fight who are on the right, what they generally say to me is that Republicans are coming around, they care about climate more than ever before. Not only do they care about it, but they're you know, at the table willing to you know, talk about what substantive policy might, might look like, and they've got an open mind. And so that's what I hear from the right. What I hear from the left, typically, is that we have an active denier in the office and that not only are we not making progress, but we are, act we are playing defense just to try to keep him from actively unwinding all the progress that we've made to date. And until we have a change in administration and get a Democrat in office, there's nothing substantive we can get done at the federal level. So given those two viewpoints, where do you come out on, on where we are today? I mean, we just passed with kind of almost unanimous bipartisan support. We just passed the Q45 tax credit, which basically establishes sort of a shadow price on carbon for carbon capture and storage. We have passed a couple of important pieces of, of advanced nuclear legislation also with virtually no opposition. And we have a new fairly substantial piece of legislation that just passed out of the Senate Energy Committee a couple of weeks ago with also virtually no opposition. So, you know, there's examples of sort of smaller actions where actually we can make progress. And I, President Trump, the climate denier in chief, you know, signed the Q45 tax credit. He signed the nuclear energy infrastructure. I can't remember what all the acronym is, but he signed that legislation. And, you know, if, if the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act passed, he's going to sign that. So for me, that's the model of progress. And and, you know, frankly, there's a lot of, well, he's undoing all the progress we've made. And I'm kind of, it's sort of like, well, what, what progress exactly is that? Because most of the progress that we've made, you know, certainly, you know, you know, there's sort of two successes over the last decade on U.S. emissions. And the first is the coal to gas transition, which Trump is not undoing. And, you know, there's lots of talk of a war on coal, but, but coal is being sort of destroyed by by natural gas, and also some progress, particularly with wind energy. And there's really not much that the administration has done to try to try to undo that. So, so I think that, you know, there is, a, there is this idea, particularly on the left, that sort of the way that, that you know, everyone, you know, the scales are going to fall from everybody's eyes. The climate deniers will be sort of routed by the forces of climate action. And will be sort of rounded up and, and tried in the Hague as climate, you know, as war criminals, literally. And then we will sort of, once, once this, this sort of war has been won, we will then proceed to solve the climate problem. And, and I just don't think that is, is remotely feasible. I don't think that's how it's going to work. And I think that the insistence, I, I'd much rather have climate deniers who were supporting 
substantial public policies to support low carbon energy sources like nuclear and carbon capture than what we have now, which is a lot of kind of climate deadlineism and an empty commitments and the idea that we'll sort of regulate our way to a low carbon economy through sort of brute political force. And, you know, there's just, there's just, we've been at this for 30 years. It's, that's not going to happen. So I've had several people tell me recently for a long time, members of the climate fight in, in different capacities tell me that if you care about climate change, the number one most important thing, at least from a U.S. standpoint, is the 2020 election. Do, do you agree or, or disagree with that statement? Let me say this. I think that in the circles that I think you and I mostly spend most of our time, you know, very engaged, very online, very concerned about climate change, there is an implicit assumption. It's behind, it's the reason that the Green New Deal has sort of captured so much imagination. And that assumption is that Trump is deeply unpopular. And as a result, there's going to be a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress after 2020. And I think that is at best a 50-50 proposition right now. You know, Trump's unpopular. We also, you know, the economy is extremely strong. We're at 3 3% unemployment. There's a bunch of polling suggesting that he's over 50% approval rating in enough states to win the Electoral College. And, you know, I think like sort of the kind of four years or 12 years to solve climate change, if your view is that it's game over for the climate, if Democrats don't sweep the 2020 election, then you need to tell me what you're going to do after 2020 if that doesn't happen. I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to be back to doing the same things we're do, we've been doing, that, that all of this sort of talk that this is the most important election of our, I think this may be the most important election of our lifetime, but not because of climate change, because of, of sort of the implications for American democracy that a second Trump term potentially holds in my view. But I, I think, you know, certainly from a climate perspective, you have to think about, well, what are we going to do if Trump's reelected? So does much change from a climate standpoint one way or another if, if Trump does another term or we get a Democrat in office? I think less than a lot of people think, because I think that, you know, even in the best of circumstances, which is that, you know, Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency, Democratic majorities are going to be deeply constrained by their their own coalition because to win majorities, Democrats have to have to win and hold seats in districts that are not particularly environmental. So you're going to have, you know, what we had back in 2009 when Democrats had commanding majorities in both houses of Congress and Obama, you know, in the first two years of his term. And, you know, you look at the how difficult it was to even get a very modest cap and trade program passed out of the House of Representatives. So I think the idea that a Democratic sweep in the elections kind of creates the possibility for very far reaching climate action is probably unlikely. And I think similarly that, you know, there are opportunities to make progress on climate, particularly technologically, even in the case of a Trump reelection. So what do you think about the work of, say, a Heartland Institute and the Heartland Climate Conference that's happening at Trump Tower this week? I think it's irrelevant. I mean, I think that that part of what goes on is that, you know, I heard this new term on Twitter, like literally yesterday. I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like mutually beneficial antagonism. And so, 
my view is that the sort of climate science wars, the kind of, you know, on the one hand, a, this sort of kind of climate change, you know, is the most important problem the world will ever face. And if we don't act in four years, it's the end of civilization. And, and anyone who even sort of not only, you know, you can at this point, people who accept the climate, all the climate science, the mainstream IPCC climate science and are like, like, this is not the end of the world in 12 years, we should mitigate as fast as we can. But, you know, my view is that we're not going to stabilize emissions at at 2C, much less 1.5C. And there are people call me a climate denier because I deny that, you know, if we don't act on climate change in the next 12 years, the world will end and it won't end. There's just very little science to suggest that. But do you think things will get really bad in the decades to come, no matter what we do at this point? I think that a fair amount of climate change is going to happen. I think that if you just look at the basic trajectory of the global economy, of the global, you know, just in the developing world, we're going past 2C. And so we need to think about how we are going to address climate change in a world in which, you know, we'll almost certainly see, you know, two and a half, maybe even three degrees of warming. And I think that's the best case, even if we get very, very serious about mitigation, which we should. And the reality of you know, the, the, these standards, 2C, 1.5, these are pretty arbitrary standards. They're not, there's no science that says that catastrophe happens past 1.5 or past 2. Nor is there science that says that catastrophe doesn't happen if we stabilize below 2 or below 1.5. That's not actually how the climate science works. It's mostly linear. And even the stuff that's nonlinear, the tipping points, there's so much uncertainty about what the consequences of those tipping points are or where in the sort of temperature distribution those tipping points would happen that as a pro as a risk proposition it's functionally linear you know the more the lower level at which you can stabilize atmospheric concentrations of carbon the less risk there is so our objective should be to stabilize as low as possible while recognizing that you know there's a billion people right now who have no access to electricity or modern fuels. There's several, you know, three or four billion now who are sort of still trying to kind of achieve living standards that people in developed countries take for granted. And that's going to happen. It should happen. And the implications of that are likely that we're going to go probably well past 2C of warming, you know, if the main, you know, sort of central estimates of climate sensitivity are correct. So, you know, I don't want to be sanguine about that. We should be doing everything we can to reduce emissions as fast as possible. We also really need to get very serious about adaptation. We need to think about things like what potential there is to do direct air capture and carbon removal. And we probably at least need to do some research on geoengineering if things turn out to be, you know, on the sort of sort of most extreme side end of the impacts distribution so and climate sensitivity. So all of those things are things that we need to do. And, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, we spend way too much time arguing with, with folks like the Heart, Heartland Institute and just obsessing over kind of, do you, you know, who's a climate denier and who's not a climate denier rather than kind of going like, like wherever you stand on sort of 
being skeptical of climate science or being very alarmed by it, what are the things that we can kind of agree to do that actually provide real benefits in the here and now, or that at least kind of, you know, I think we just need to orient the political proposition here much more around the uncertainty that we don't know how serious the problem will be. We don't know how fast the climate will change. We don't know how well human societies will adapt. So, you know, we should be buying as much insurance as possible to mitigate that risk. And that means, you know, decarbonizing as fast as we can. Stabilizing at two degrees above industrial, pre-industrial levels is better than, than three. Stabilizing at three is better than three and a half. Stabilizing at three and a half is better than four. So we just need to go as fast as we can, you know, recognizing that there are technological constraints, there are economic constraints, there are political constraints that mean that it's likely that we're not going to be able to go as fast as many would like. And if you had a big pot of money, say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on decarbonizing quickly and effectively, where would it go? How would you allocate it? I would put a lot of money into nuclear and carbon capture. And I would put a lot of money into figuring out how we're going to decarbonize the rest of the economy outside of the power sector, because the power sector is the easy part. Cement is, you know, six or eight percent of global emissions. Steel is another five or six percent at least. You know, you look at sort of heavy transportation, you look at fertilizer production. So I think there's a lot of resources that sort of need to go into technology development and deployment in these sectors that are not the power sector. So, you know, I would spend a lot of money on that stuff and I would spend some of that on R&D, but I would just spend a lot of it on just getting a bunch of different technologies to market. I would spend a bunch of it on, on, on building the sort of supporting infrastructure that we need. You know, I think that there's a bunch of challenges that are not actually just about throwing money at the problem or even just the technology. Like, you know, if you believe that you want like really high penetrations of renewables, you got to figure out how to build a lot of transmission capacity, which turned out to be really, really hard. You know, nuclear, we've got to figure out, you know, sort of politically acceptable solutions to the waste disposal issue. You know, when we look at like, you know, Africa, for instance, I mean, if you look at kind of both as a development challenge and as a climate challenge, what are the the, the kind of combination of technology, infrastructure, and infrastructure and, and institutions, political and economic institutions, that's going to allow sub-Saharan Africa to develop as rapidly as possible in a less carbon-intensive ways than way than you know Europe or Asia have developed? Those are kind of, I think, the sort of central questions. And especially in the developing world, you know, there are really important, even from a climate perspective, not even a human development perspective, there are really important trade-offs. For instance, the faster GDP grows in sub-Saharan Africa, the faster fertility rates are likely to fall. So there's a trade-off between per capita income and population. And if you kind of play those trade-offs out through you know, 2060, 27, 2100, you get huge differences in what the sort of population in sub-Saharan Africa is and what the wealth is that sort of to some degree balance each other out in terms of emissions. So, you know, one could make a case that, you know, we ought to countenance a fair amount of fossil development in Africa just to accelerate the growth of per capita incomes because of what the implications of that are, you know, in terms of 
sort of overall population and emissions over the course of this century. Obviously, the more we can do that with low or zero carbon technology, the better. But there are trade-offs here that don't get talked about very much and that I think we need to think a lot more about. And what advice do you have? So if, if there are listeners out there who care about the problem and hear about the overshoot, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half, three and beyond and the adaptation that we'll need and they're really concerned about it and want to help, what advice do you have for them? I would say that I think that there are a lot of people in the rich world who are very, very freaked out about climate change and what it looks like for their children and grandchildren. My advice would be one, talk back to the catastrophism because I don't think the catastrophism helps. There's lots of like arguments that panic, we should, all, we should be panicking, but panicking is a, panic is a terrible reaction to any kind of crisis. And I think the other thing is just to sort of remember, like when people kind of think, you know, in, in like the US or Europe, sort of imagine what this sort of post-apocalyptic climate world looks like. I think we envision this sort of Mad Max kind of future in which, you know, there's just incredible resource scarcity and breakdown of, of society and the rule of law. And we're just vulnerable to this kind of incredibly variable, dangerous climate. I think it's just worth remembering that that's how a couple of billion people live right now. If you live in much of sub-Saharan Africa, parts of South Asia, that is life today. And it's not because of climate change. It's because you're really poor. So our kind of existential terror is actually just reality for several billion people. And I think that, you know, when you put it in that perspective, you kind of go like, first of all, continuing global economic development is really important. It's what makes people resilient to climate change. And secondly, that, you know, any solution to climate change just has to, has to be consistent with the social and economic aspirations of seven, eight, nine, ten billion people. If it's not, it's not gonna it's not gonna succeed. It's not a solution. And obviously that's what I think is the key to that. That's why we focus so much on technology, because technology is the thing that really mediates the relationship between human well being and environmental impacts. It's interesting because on the one hand, you're saying that energy poverty is as big an issue as, as climate change and that just transition matters and that people need to be taken into account. But then in another, you're saying, you know, that Green New Deal is like the big bath where it's putting in both the carbon problem and the jobs problem and the right. And, and so I guess given your first, like what you just finished saying, I'm surprised that you aren't more of a proponent for the Green New Deal's aspirational rhetoric. I'm all for the aspirational rhetoric, but I think that it gets tied up with a bunch of other things that are problematic, both with this sort of, I think, overly hysterical and catastrophist set of claims about climate change. You know, I think what's interesting about the Green New Deal, if you go back to like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's sort of original kind of idea of it, you know, climate change was not the central argument here. The central thing was the New Deal part, not the green part. So, you know, Ocasio was sort of calling for, you know, a much more sort of expansive public commitment 
to provide basic services for people, healthcare, jobs. And by the way, we do that in a way that also address the climate crisis. And I think what's so interesting, and this is the way that sort of climate just sort of sucks up all the air out of the room, is that's almost been completely forgotten. We hardly ever even talk about like universal health care or Medicare for all in the context of a Green New Deal anymore, or jobs and employment for communities that need it. And it's all just catastrophe, you know, avoiding its climate emergency and avoiding catastrophe. And I think this is sort of what what happens when we allow this sort of totally catastrophist framing to take over the conversation is that we kind of actually lose track of all the other things that matter in the world. And obviously, you know, at a global level, poor societies becoming wealthier, and I don't mean so that they can kind of, you know, everyone can have gold-plated plumbing fixtures like in the Trump Tower, but so that people can sort of are assured the basic infrastructure of social and economic modernity. First of all, it is like the first line of defense against climate change. You know, and secondly, today, you know, even if we kind of have much better, you know, like solar and wind turbines continue to do better, and this is what almost no one talks about. I mean, you know, you have to build that modernity. It's energy intensive. And today it's fossil energy intensive. It's concrete and steel. You know, if you don't have climate solutions that allow you to pour a hell of a lot of concrete and steel all over the world for most of the rest of this century, you don't have a climate solution. Well, I feel like we've covered so much ground today. Is there anything I didn't ask you or or any parting words for listeners? No, I mean, uh, you know, it's sort of great to talk about this stuff. And, and, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think that you know, I'm optimistic, but I'm optimistic because I'm realistic. You know, I think a sort of wealthier, more developed world can can weather a lot of climate change. Just look at the difference in the impacts that extreme weather has in poor countries versus rich countries. And I think once you kind of get your head around that and around the reality that a lot of development is going to have to happen and a fair amount of it's going to be fueled by fossil fuels, then you kind of start to go, how do we minimize how much fossil fuel we burn? How do we minimize? You have to design for that future. And that future is one with people who are going to consume more, who are going to live modern lives with a lot more steel and cement around them and a lot more energy intensive living styles. So that's the world we have to design for. And we have to kind of get to that world while emitting as little carbon as possible over the course of this century. And, you know, I think we can do that. That's where I'm optimistic. But I think we have to sort of stop kind of positing kind of really impossible demands and deadlines for what we're going to do and how fast we're going to do it. And I think we also, then we can kind of get to work sort of driving the transformation, you know, in a sort of realistic fashion. Great. Well, I mean, the goal of the podcast is not to convert anybody to a specific worldview. It's, it's, it's basically just to surface the different worldviews that are out there and enable each listener to get to their own worldview from a more informed position. So I think in that regard, both in terms of my own worldview, but hopefully listeners as well, based on the other guests that we've covered to date, I think you brought something new to the discussion and certainly move things forward in terms of our ability to do that, to inform people, to get to their own worldview. So for that, I thank you very much. 
Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.